Hello, I'm Conor Geerty, and welcome to Leaders in Shape, a podcast series in which I get to speak with some of the most influential figures shaping the fields of social sciences, humanities, and the arts. For this episode, I spoke to Tristram Hunt, the former Labour MP and now director of the VA, the world's leading museum of art, design, and performance. We talked about ways of doing culture, the impact of funding in the heritage sector, and the challenges of navigating a museum collection's relationship with its past. But I kicked things off by asking him, as someone who has been an academic, a TV presenter, a director of a distinguished museum, and a politician, which role is more important for shaping culture? Um, Connor, it's lovely to be with you, and first of all, support all the, all the work that the British Academy is doing, particularly in supporting the humanities and, and, and making the case there. Um, I, I think being in, in, in the role I am in at the moment, um, in terms of an institution with, you know, in a good year, four million visitors, with people seeing our exhibitions around the world, with uh, publications, with research into material culture. I think in terms of the, the different places I've I've been in, for me, um, this is a role in which one can have the greatest impact in, in, in terms of shaping culture. But stepping back, I think, you know, wh- wh- whether you look at um, the work of culture ministers in the past or whether you look at the work of specific publications, I, I think people at, at, at moments, be it in politics or literature um, or institutions, um, in all of those spheres can make profound impacts when, you know, and, and you've, you've studied, you know, people in moments when those two forces come together. And, and as a politician, uh, hopefully in, in, in Stoke-on-Trent, I, I made some impact in terms of culture in that city. But, you know, stepping back, I was always in opposition and then, when when Jeremy uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the opposition, I was kind of in opposition, in opposition, in opposition. So, so my impact there was was pretty limited. Now, what's been fascinating to watch is you leave politics to take a job in a museum. Now, a few years ago, we'd have been looking forward to a conversation about which things to put before the public, or whether to pay or not to pay, or how to cope with this or that room. But now you've left politics to enter politics. And what's extraordinary is the range of powerful cultural issues that are thrown up, that are thrown up by the, the current commitment to various things which have an immediate impact on places like the VA. And we'll start with one unavoidably. And already we have a question in on this. You, you wrote a very interesting piece in Prospect, and you were talking about, I think it might even have been your term, imperial trophy hunting. So no one denies that things went on in the past, and the VA is connected quite a bit to the East India Company. And this has been recognized increasingly in our culture. We've got the Holocaust Return of Cultural Objects Act, which is about the Nazis. So it creates a framework, creates a framework for this, for, for return, at least I obscure it, for return. We've had a remarkable intervention by the president of France about this. We have the human right on in, of indigenous peoples, which you've acknowledged. There's a lot going on. Guidance from the Institute of Art and Law, Jew, the pressure is building, isn't it? The pressure is building and maybe rightly building, not pushing it too hard to just say, look, stuff we got in certain kinds of ways. The time has come to acknowledge that. 
and put them back in inverted commas back where they belong. How, how do you, how do you react to this growing energy? Well, a we 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 should absolutely be having this discussion because it's 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 kind of core, particularly to a museum like the V&A. To, to step back one, one one moment, so the East India Company repository, which was the the the, the, the museum of the East India Company and the psychology of colonialism, was intimately bound up with collecting became after the 1857 and the collapse of the East India Company came part of the South Kensington Museum. So we've we've had this very, very long history to colonialism um, and the, 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 the history of the British Empire is embedded within um, South Kensington. We also have within the collection specific items from, for example, Ethiopia, which were looted in uh, 1868, uh, uh, um, we've also had the items uh, from uh, the Ashanti, which were taken by Sir Garnet Woolsey in a, in a punitive raid in, um, in 1874. So we've got multiple items collected from, from multiple colonial pasts. And that's important because all of these have different histories. All of these objects have different pasts. And much that was in the East India Company repository, for example, some was taken as loot. But a lot was acquired as gifts, a lot was purchased. And yes, in an unequal economic relationship, but at the moment, do you know what? China is buying an awful lot in an unequal economic relationship. The Gulf states are buying an awful lot in an unequal economic relationship. And money and art and power often go together. And so, I, I think there are specific items, for example, the restitution of the Ethiopian collections, where we're in a really detailed dialogue with the Ethiopian embassy. Similarly, our Ashanti collection, where we're in a detailed dialogue with museums in Ghana. But you, you and this is what I've learned here, you do have to begin with the object and the specific history of the object, rather than that kind of macro idea that Britain was very powerful in the 1800s, ergo everything in the collections in that time is wrongfully acquired and needs to be dispersed, which for the, for the kind of Savoy Saar approach, um, which, which President Macron commissioned, they have effectively argued, and it's very radical, but it's also very clear that everything in a French museum between 1880 and 1960, which was acquired from countries with which France had a colonial relationship, for which there is not a specific and detailed, as it were, invoice and receipt, should be returned. And, and I think that blanket political approach is not the right approach. Well, we have to some extent intellectually sold the past because we need to put comma unless it's the Nazis. So in the UK, we have a system. You know, I mentioned it. There's an advisory panel. It's supposed to look into things, but it's very narrowly defined. So how can we say unless it's the Nazis and maintain the credibility of our objection? Is the objection not exactly the same for the Nazis, Tristram? The difference, I think, with, with um, the Nazi spoliation is private property rights. Uh, the difference is, is it, because the families need to come forward for the specific family rights um, of, of, um, that, that pertain to them. And, and at the VNA, we have returned uh, uh, Meissen artifacts to families where it was, 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 was stolen by the Nazis in the 1930s. But I think, you know, 
you look at that and you say, well, hold on, that was stolen by the Nazis in the 1930s, but this was looted in, in the early 1900s. You know, what is the big difference here between, between those uh, items? And I think we will debate that over the coming years. But for a museum like the VNA and the British Museum and, and some others, our trustees cannot what's called deaccession. Nothing can be removed from the collection. So my way around this, and I'm passionate about sharing our collection much more widely, is to think about long-term loans of what we have in the collection. But then, you know, as it were, colleagues in Ethiopia rightly say to me, hold on, you want us to borrow stuff from you that you looted from us. And, and at the moment, that, that's, all, that's all we can uh, we can do. But we've done it with colleagues in Spain where items were looted and then we've returned those to Spain on a long-term uh, uh, loan. So there are ways around it, but this will, this will have to be solved at a, at a political level uh, at, at a certain juncture. By something like a directive in legislation. And then, and then you've got a radical critique, which isn't in Ethiopia, where we're getting our questions are coming in. And one is here from Dan Hicks, whom you know, Dan, I think, a strong engaged figure here, uh, Dan won't mind me saying that. And he's, he's saying, look, this is about, and I'm quoting his terms here, facing up to and actively dismantling the infrastructure of institutional racism that persists in our colonial era museums. Now, Dan's not talking about you guys in particular. It's a general critique, we know that. And, but the question, how can the VNA meaningfully address systemic racism beyond just claiming it's an historical topic that needs better interpretation. That's that's not what you've been saying. But how do you, or maybe you say you don't do it, but meaningfully address systemic racism? Because I think I think the collections are are, are one part of it. I think programming, for example, our you know really exciting upcoming exhibition on Africa fashion, for which we're acquiring new new items uh, today. I think the the, the staff body. Um, I think the, the research program. So I think, I think dealing with, as it were, issues of restitution and repatriation is one part, but it's not the totality of the conversation. And, and actually, when, when you talk to colleagues, again, and this is just you know, pertaining to us in, in Ethiopia and Ghana and elsewhere, yes, there's this absolute issue around, around some of these collections, but there's a much broader conversation that, they want to have about research collaboration uh, and scholarship and conservation approaches. And, and we had a, a very brilliant conversation with, with Kwame Anthony Appiah uh, last week talking about cosmopolitanism and not losing sight of the important role of museums as places of cosmopolitanism and how he wrestled as someone with a, a Ghanaian and British identity of his enormous pride in having items from uh, from the Ashanti um, in museums in London, but also thinking that more of those should be back in in Ghana, and so that and you know similarly David Olasuga has spoken about that in terms of the the, the Benin items. So museums also have this role of, of of celebration of culture, of celebration of cosmopolitanism, as well as and there's a particularity around the the loss of artifacts from sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying there, because I'm thinking also as you as you speak of something you said uh, in Prospect. And so the logic of your position isn't we keep because we're better. The logic is that we share. But then you wrote a sentence. 
which I have to say reminded me a bit of what the colonial office used to say when they were trying to postpone colonial independence. In time, I hope that's not too unfair, Tristan, to an historian. You tell me. In time, we hope to share these items far more equitably. So when is the time right for a radical rethink? Is it depending on the stability of countries out there? Is it depending on some judgment that they have jumped hoops? When is in time? The, the, the boring practicality of this is that um, there, there are legal obstacles to insurance that we want to get these items um, abroad as, as swiftly as possible. But in order to get them there, we need an acceptance of, of ownership. And quite rightly and quite understandably, uh, colleagues we're dealing with in, in some of these countries are saying, well, we're not going to say the, these belong to you. We're not going to say that. And we're trying to work through the politics of this, which is to say, well, you know, can we just say in this particular situation for this moment, because this will allow us to ensure them, which will allow us to, to, to get them. So I think, I, I certainly hope that within the next five years, our Ethiopian collection will be on display in Addis Ababa, And I think our Ashanti collection will hopefully be um, on display um, in, in Ghana. But we're, we're obviously dealing in, 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 in some situations with, with, with royal collections and national collections, and there's a complexity there. And I think it's also just, just to sort of flip it around. It shouldn't just be on our timetable because it's, do you know what? It's politically suitable for me to try and get these items out of the door within the next 18 months or so. Actually, this should be a, a conversation of generosity, which says, um, not generosity in a kind of patronizing way, but a, a collegiate generosity, which says, okay, when you're, when you're ready and on your timetable, then we're going to be in the right place to share these. So it's, it's not a sense that, you know, these areas aren't kind of, you know, um, the sites are not ready in terms of the physical infrastructure or, or the, and, you know, it'll take forever. Um, when, when we've got the legalism sorted out, we're going to have our conservation teams on the ground to make sure the humidity rates are right and, and all of that kind of stuff, because trustees do still have a legal responsibility for these collections. But I think within the next five years. Yeah, very interesting. What I'm going to ask about now is a kind of sister subject. I talked about politics being unavoidable. There is the here and now, the contested presence. You know, there's a lot of criticism about the, 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 the sacklers. There's a lot of head of steam about funders, contemporary funders. I work at LSE. We were extremely badly burnt by associations with funders. Everywhere's risking it. You've got this thriving association with China, you know, different parts of China. You've mentioned it already. Uh, there's a country that doesn't like being criticized for its human rights record. There's people in Britain whose careers have been ended just recently by criticisms about their treatment of the Uyghur, for example. How do you, as in the end, the top guy in the VNA, how do you navigate these contested presence as well? With people saying, get rid of the Cyprus, get rid of the connection with China, won't let you bring in BP, the new ethic. How do you how do you manage and navigate that one, Crystal? Um I, th I think it's part of the job, uh, and I think one doesn't always get it right, and you have to make these calls. The, the background is that we have a mixed economy model of political funding, and that, that's good and bad. Um, and on the bad side, it means that we spend a lot of time um, uh, ha having to make sure that 
Uh, we're raising the money in the appropriate ways and, uh, and, and connecting with people. Um, the good side is that it, it reduces our over-dependence on government. It makes us connect with business, which I think is important. You know, the, the V&A began out of the 1851 Great Exhibition of Industry of All Nations. You know, the, the, the Crystal Palace was decried as a, as, a, as a great kind of, you know, department store. So we have this commercial past and we also are, 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 are proud to have in our shops, you know, work by designer makers, by craftspeople, you know, so, so we don't regard commerce as grubby. We, we like commerce at the V&A and actually, you know, we, one of the original titles was the Museum of Manufacture. And, and what's the alternative? The alternative is, you know, in, in Russia, you know, you go around the wonderful Hermitage and, and each room isn't sponsored because the entire thing is, as it were, taken care of or in similarly in aspects of France. And there's more political control there. So, so raising money from, from, from a, a, a kind of a mixed economy model gives us in, at some level a criticism of dependence on this, but also in another level, actually independence. Our, our problem at the moment, Connor, is that the v has been very enterprising and the last year, enterprise has fallen away. So we're actually very dependent upon government um, at the moment. The, the, the China question is really interesting. And, we're, and again, we're all going to wrestle with this. We have over 20,000 objects from China. To say that we can't be engaged with China or shouldn't be engaged with China whilst holding this phenomenal collection, some of which was taken from the burning of the Summer Palace. Um, would I think, to go back to your earlier questions about kind of, you know, colonial mentalities and, and, and sort of Western stances, would also expose us to some of that criticism in a, in a, in a different light. So, so we work with partners that, that we, you know, feel connected to and supportive of and, in, in, and, 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 and are, are, are kind of progressive um, in, 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 and moving in the right direction. But it's always a risk. It's always a risk. Don't peer behind. I was briefly on the committee at LSE where we worked out reasons why we shouldn't take money because we were so anxious. And if, if somebody turned up with a few million, we'd say, what's wrong with them? And we'd research everything from parking tickets to wholesale fraud. Do you have any kind of ethics committee, which is a sort of anxiety warning slot? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, no. And we've, we've, you know, we've got a traffic light system, and we, we've turned down money, and I turned down um, uh, funds only, only, only the other uh, week. Um, and, and we also report to the audit committee um, on this, so trustees are are, um, um, are aware of it. And it, you know, just as with everything, some things get through the net, but we. But we also, you know, we're, we're delighted people want to be involved with the BNA and be supportive. And the, and the vast majority actually are, um, you know, philanthropic. And that's, and that's to be, you know, admired and supported. Robert Bewley asks, you mentioned money, Tristan. We should acknowledge the, not only the government money falling, but my goodness, COVID year, we'll come back to that now. 40 million drop, I think, in your revenues. Robert asks, so an interesting kind of shapes question. Uh, in terms of shaping the past for the future, how influential do you think the introduction of lottery funding has been in British cultural heritage? So a bit more than just you, lottery and cultural heritage. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's transformative. It, um, I mean, what the lottery did was to democratise a notion of, 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 of heritage and access to heritage. Uh, and, and in a sense... 
put money behind the celebration of diverse narratives and diverse identities through heritage um, in the UK, as well as just, you know, if you remember, Connor, I'm sure you do, the, you know, the state of the, the British cultural infrastructure in the mid-1990s was appalling. Um, you know, the leaking roofs, the, 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 the terrible facilities, um, and the lottery fund came in and did both a huge amount of really important work on, on infrastructure um, and this, this kind of diversifying of, of ideas of heritage. You know, the success of UK museums over the last 20 years, and we should be absolutely clear that this is a massive success story um, of more people coming to see more objects and be excited by more understandings of the past. Part of that is, is, is predicated on the lottery investment. And relatedly, a couple of anonymous questions, but we talked a little bit about reaching beyond the shores of the United Kingdom, but an interesting question, anonymous. How important is it to have large national museums with bases or run programs outside London? Now you've got Stratford. We should talk a little bit about the Stratford Initiative and how it's coping with the whole COVID world, but more than just London. You know, as a former MP for Stoke, goodness, you know that. Uh, is it something you, you're developing uh, more than London, UK, but out there? Hugely important. Again, the history. That the VNA, I mean, the South Kensington Museum, this, this, this model of a kind of uh, applied and decorative arts museum, that was the inspiration then for the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery, the Nottingham Trent Museum, uh, Nottingham Castle Museum. Um, so this regional, uh, and actually, you know, the National Museums in Scotland and in Dublin. Um, so the VNA always had this very strong kind of regional um, sensibility. Um, and we're, you know, we're obviously, along with the other national museums, big lender and loaner of objects to exhibitions around the country. But our footprint uh, kind of nationally now, VNA Dundee, really important regeneration project by the Tay side, uh, by the Tay. Um, Scotland's, you know, leading design museum now. Um, we share our collections there. And, and it, it's, you know, people are cynical about the kind of Bilbao effect and the role of museums in regeneration. It's doing the job in Dundee. You know, the, the amount of inward investment coming into that city, um, the excitement now, you know, e even talk of a, a new Eden project up there. It's really exciting there. Secondly, you know, my big campaign whilst I was the Member of Parliament for Stoke on Trent Central was to support the, the saving of the Wedgwood Collection, the Wedgwood Museum. And part of that deal was that the Wedgwood Collection, 80,000 objects from the world's greatest potter, um, became part of the VNA Collection. And what we're now doing um, is really investing in the VNA Wedgwood Collection, Stoke on Trent. So Dundee, Stoke, and then also our, our other big partner is in Blackpool. Uh, where they're building a new museum, Blackpool Showtime, around theatre performance. We are privileged to have the theatre performance collection uh, within the VNA, um, and so we're supporting in Blackpool a really exciting kind of popular entertainment uh, theatre performance uh, museum there. So, to the anonymous question, it is it is essential. I think it, it's the right thing to do. It's it, it's it's what we should be doing is, is making sure we're sharing our expertise and our collections as widely as possible. And another anonymous questioner in this difficult year, their words, not mine, though clearly it is a difficult year. Have you kind of my words bonded with other museums and cultural institutions, quote, as you all navigate the same challenges? 
Has it brought you together in some peculiar paradoxical way? Oh, oh, oh definitely, both, both nationally and internationally. Um, and, and I think, you know, we, we've kind of, we've come together as museums to, you know, make sure we're, we're, we're kind of making the right ask of the treasury and, and working together like that. We, you know, we, it's very collegiate. We share information around, you know, how our ticketing processes, how we're going to reopen, when we're going to reopen. Um, we've all been through really tough restructure programs and redundancy programs and thinking about how we support colleagues in those situations. So there, there is a strong collegiate feel um, w within the museums. And then internationally, it's, it's really, you know, we're in the same place as many of our colleagues in America. Our colleagues on the continent have been more protected because they had more state funding. Um, and so, as it were, the, the loss of, you know, exhibition ticket sales and, and food sales and, and, uh, doesn't hit them so much. But it, it, it has been a, a moment where we've come together and worked together and not just within the museums, I think, across cultural institutions, you know, theatre, music, dance, because um, we've all felt the impact, you know, we're, we're, we are sociable places um, and the pandemic rips that apart. You wrote in a piece in The Guardian, what kind of culture do we want to return to? And here's some heretical thought. We make much of the wonderful power of remote access. We've had to, to keep our spirits up during COVID. And yet there's some truth in it. There's some truth in it. So you say, you say, look, there's nothing beats seeing in flesh. But what about this? What about this? Look, you have to travel to see it. You have to find it in the museum. You have to pay. And then when you get to it, unless you're lucky enough with respect to be the director, you're being moved along pretty quickly. So I'm wondering whether or not a new model would not be wholly inappropriate with, with serendipitous exposure to the collection via the web and then a fairly rigorous queuing process to get into a much quieter, emptier V&A where you're brought along by a curator because you've predetermined the bits you want to see. Is there, is there a way in which, here's the aggressive bit, that the V&A is like a giant Debenhams, you know, it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a white elephant in a world of the web. Is that possible? A new model? Save money, save money like a, immediately. I, I mean, I, I, I like the proposition that as it were, you've, you've, you've kind of, you've researched it online first. You know you want to go and see, you know, the, the, uh, the Turner and the Constable and the, the, uh, the Three Graces and, and you come and, um, and, and then you, as it were, you pre-book and then you take that. But I, I think what that takes away and what I feel a desperate sense of loss of is, um, is one of the great wonders of living in an urban environment, of, of just coming and going from, from a gallery. Of, of, and, and, you know, this is a privilege for those who, who live in London or Edinburgh or Manchester or Liverpool. Um, and that serendipity as well, that I'm going to turn left, not right. I'm going to go to the, the Buddhist galleries rather than the Raphael Court. I'm going to uh, see something I hadn't known before. So in a sense, I, I, I've got this, this, this strong sense. We've all been told what to look at. If you like this, you're like that. The kind of algorithm of predictive capitalism has funneled us down ever, uh, ever narrower corridors. And the great wonder of a you know the British Museum um, or or the VA is, is is to wander and enjoy. And I think that's been one of the great 
losses. I mean, I think we will still have to plan, just as we have to book our place at the swimming pool or in, or in a restaurant. We're going to have that, you know, one way or another for another year, probably. But my ambition is as soon as we don't have to have it is to get rid of it. Um, and, um, and, and even if we lose some sort of data sets on the back of it, I think that that free civic virtue of wandering into these great places of, of learning and discovery, and crucially in London for free, um, is really important. Yeah, so being free is essential to that model, isn't it? It collapses if you charge. It collapses yeah. if you charge. Now, I mean, and, yeah. and you, the, the economics of it are, 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 are such that um, if, if you charge, your, you know, your numbers fall by 50%. Um, and our model is that f- free entrance means that people are you know, coming to the shop, they're coming to the cafe, they're coming to the exhibitions, and so they're paying in a different way. The other way in which politics is unavoidable is something wholly unexpected in British culture, which is that civil society broadly, the BBC, the museums, I would include the universities, even now the law are coming under pressure from a very popular government led by a very popular figure to conform to visions of what that government believed Britain to be and to become. And we see occasionally people resigning from, as trustees, we saw Sir Charles Dunstan pull out the Royal Museum's Greenwich. We've seen some pressure on the Science Museums group. You know what I'm talking about, pressure from government to conform, I'm using words explicitly, recklessly, to conform to an agenda. Government meets you, they, you all have to agree things. Do you feel under pressure to represent a certain way of doing culture that whoever the latest culture minister is, if he's called or she's called a culture minister, approves of? Well, I obviously have to be careful what I say. Uh, <laughs> I, I am. careful how I asked him, didn't I? <laughs> I am a, a public servant. Um, well, I mean, first of all, I was a sitting Labour member of parliament, appointed the director of a cultural institution. And so um, th- th- there was some cross-party um, generosity around that, which it, it would be churlish not to... Um, not to acknowledge. I've never felt under any pressure about a kind of exhibition or a publication um, or uh, a, a kind of partnership um, from um, political uh, you know, forces. Um, but I also think it's good for ministers to, to understand, um, just as with the BBC, that the strength of these institutions around the world is born of their independence and their sense of autonomy. And that this is the great irony that they they help to project an idea of Britain because they're not connected to the government. And the language, you know, soft power can can go quite swiftly if you are regarded as um, you know, an agent of government, that the strength of BBC of BBC television is very different to Russia today because we know there's a distinction between it. And so however frustrated ministers are about, you know, I'm, as it were, the minister for culture, why can't I be in charge of culture? Um, the, the whole point is that for, for, for British, for the success of British cultural institutions, both at home and abroad, ministers have to kind of step back and realize that that autonomy is important even if it is supported by taxpayers' money. 
Um, and, and that's difficult. That's difficult to, to, to kind of swallow. Even if stepping forward involves arguments where ministers eventually lose, but they get the votes. So what maybe they've happened upon is a new idea, which is this quarreling with the fashionable metropolitan types is good for political business at a crude level. And so they don't have to win. They don't have to break up the VNA. They don't have to break up the BBC. They just have lots of energetic discourse about how metropolitan we all are. And that's enough for them. I mean, I, I, I think you, you see certain instances when almost both sides enjoy it. Um, that um, that there is a sort of um, a, attempt to, on, on I would say the kind of you know the more radical left to regard you know museums, universities, the BBC, all of these what are traditionally regarded as progressive parts of the fabric of civil society as inherently either you know racist or uh, uh, sexist or capitalist or. Um, invalid in, in, in terms of some contemporary identity politics. And on the right, us as sort of, you know, irredeemably woke and metropolitan and cosmopolitan and um, all, those, all those words, which I have to think are quite good words. Um, and our role is not to be party political. Our role, I'm absolutely sort of um, vehement about this, um, is to know what we're doing and to stick in our lane and keep going. And, and, our, our, our mission is to broaden horizons through the exploration and celebration of material culture and not to be involved in, in party political battles about um, you know, funding levels and um, our arguments over you know, the nature of um, flags and identity. We explore that through doing you know, wonderful exhibitions um, on, you know, Africa fashion. We explore that through doing wonderful exhibitions uh, on Epic Iran, which we're about to open. We, we kind of thicken the conversation through our actions rather than uh, having the, the kind of totemic struggles, uh, which, you know, on left and right will be enjoyed almost too much. Liz asks, uh, government has announced it is having funding for high cost courses that they do not deem strategically important, as Liz puts it. And then the question, which is very connected to what we just talked about, how do we address this narrative that the arts are recreational rather than a vital part of the UK's cultural and economic health? The arts are not a business, though we are entrepreneurs in some ways, the arts is culture. How do we do that? How do we address that narrative? Take it on. I, I, I think it's... <laughs> I think it's so important that you, you, you can have a really clear argument, which your organisations like the Creative Industries Federation pursue very, very well, of the importance of the creative industries to the UK economy and um, you know, what we sell abroad and our film industry and our culture industry. And then you could also have a really strong argument, which is not being made um, either on the political left or right um, in terms of party politics at the moment, um, on the merits of a vibrant artistic culture, the merits uh, of uh, 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 having um, an, an effective infrastructure for art and culture, um, the merits of, 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 of having a design and music and dance and all of these components um, of, of, of a successful society. 
And I think the, the people who make those uh, arguments most effectively are, are indeed the kind of the makers and the designers and the, um, and the artists. But, you know, I, I would like to hear more you know, from, from both political parties about the, about the merits of that alongside, you know, the, the more obvious um, conversation around the, the economic um, merits of this. And the argument I always make when I go into schools um, is, is around the fourth industrial revolution and the importance of creativity, that young people are going to have five, six, seven jobs um, in their lives, um, and they're going to need resilience, and they're going to need ingenuity, and all of these elements that actually an artistic education helps to teach them. Because if they don't have that, the robots are going to steal their jobs. And the kids get it, but the parents don't. And you've got to tell the parents that it's really important that their children study music and design and art and drama, because actually they're, they're future-proofing them against some of the extraordinary changes that are going to happen in the future. Well, here's a, a fan who's anonymous. The V&A used to be known as the world's greatest museum of art and design, but it's getting better, this one. This slogan has changed to include performance now, the greatest museum of art, design and performance. I love this change, this person says anonymously, and we'll be interested to know how this increased commitment to performance came about. Is it before your time? Is it on your watch? But how did you end up with this brilliant insight about including performance? Because the, 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 the theatre collection, which was part of the BNA and then became the Theatre Museum in Covent Garden, then came back into the museum um, after the closure of the Covent Garden uh, exhibition. And so the theatre and performance department uh, became part of um, uh, the museum again. And one of my very brilliant predecessors, Mark Jones, turned us from art and design into art, design and performance. Um, and it's it's a really important part of, of what we do. I've, I've just been to see um, the, the, the final stages of the building of our Alice in Wonderland exhibition, which is curated uh, by uh, Kate Bailey, who works in our theatre performance department. And she and, and what you have there in a brilliant V&A way is an account of, of word and image, the, the literary history of uh, Lewis Carroll, the, the artistic uh, history of, of the incredible uh, uh, illustrations, and then an account of Alice through theatre and film and music. And, and that's the V&A story, that you can take these you know, remarkable components of culture and understand them uh, in so many different facets of material culture. Will Brexit provincialise British culture? I hope not. Uh, I mean, the, 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 we've got to wrestle with some of the, the kind of bureaucracy of, 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 of loans and, and, uh, and, and, and back and forth. Um, but the V&A, we're, we're both a, you know, we're a national museum, as I, we spoke about Stoke and Dundee. We're, we're a European museum. Albert and Victoria were, were European uh, 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 figures. Um, and we're and we're a global museum because of the East India Company collection and uh, and uh, and more more widely. So we just have to make it work. It's our responsibility in a sense. Um, and you know, Lord knows, I I campaigned for Remain in the referendum in Stoke on Trent Central, which voted seventy thirty out. So I've got the kind of you know, I I know about the case for and against Brexit, but it's done. Um, and it's, it's the responsibility of a museum like the V&A to, as it were, not allow this moment to, to, 
to, to presage a retreat from our, you know, our, our wonderful continental partners. And I'm involved in a network of design museums, Hungary, um, Vienna, Paris, um, to make sure that, that, that we keep those conversations alive. There's another question. Uh, obviously, navigating a return to normality will be a priority over the next five years. But then the question, uh, and your, your job has done a lot, and so it's a five-year time. What else are you keen to do in the next five years? I don't know whether that means leave the VNA, go to another five different things, or whether it means within the VNA, but answer as you wish. Where is the next five years uh, going? Well, hopefully very, very much here. But the, 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 the big change of the, of the coming years, which you alluded to, Connor, um, is, is, is the two new sites in, in, in Stratford and, and the, the VNA's transition to a, to a multi-site museum out from um, our, our, our kind of heartland in South Kensington. We've had our Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green since uh, 1874 in, 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 in different ways. But what we're doing in, on the Olympic Park in Stratford is remarkable. We're, we're building a new collections and research centre, so you will be able to walk through the storage facility of the VNA. That, that age-old question everyone asks of museums, where have, you, where have you hidden the other stuff? Well, now you'll be able to go and see uh, where that is. And then a new waterfront museum, part of the East Bank development, uh, kind of South Bank of the 21st century, alongside uh, Sadler's Wells, the BBC, London College of Fashion. We've got a brilliant new director there, Gus Casey Hayford, uh, and that is celebrating the culture of making in East London and thinking about what that, that, that the history of that and what that means for today. So that's, we'll be saying more about that um, in, in the coming months and years, but that will be the big transition of the coming years. Well, it sounds as though it may well be the VNA for a while yet. Now I've got, I've got one last question. We, we, we covered some of the questions. Sorry to those who we haven't been able to fit in. This is a, a short last one because we're running out of time. Uh, you get a phone call this month from Kirsten. And he says, my goodness, it didn't go so well, did it? Give me one single piece of advice to revive labor. Now, forget you're a civil servant. Forget you're the director. Pretend you're at a dinner party in Metropolitan London with me. How would you answer that? What advice would you give? One piece of advice. I, I think it's been so, so hard for Kia, not least because, I mean, from my view, what, 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 inherited but also the pandemic and, and the, the inability you know what politicians you know they they feed off the the, the, the kind of human um I, I i think the kia story kia needs to get in a sense the backstory right about him him as the prosecutor him as the kind of um the the you know what what he achieved there and then how that translates to the kind of leadership he provides for the for the Britain of the future, and I I, I do think you know have, having a kind of poly, uh, a sort of policy vision. Everyone always says this, but but having a, a backstory, uh, a clear idea of what the leadership entails, and and then a policy uh, uh, you know a kind of easily understandable policy uh, framework for the future in in quite narrow tight terms is is really important but it's so easy to say that i mean you know the ability to actually kind of deliver that in 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 in, in the face of it but it's you know i i you know i think about stoke and it's 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 so hard um you know we we saw what happened in scotland with the the aftermath of the referendum there and and all the fears that people thought about in terms of traditional 
Labour areas and the impact then of the Brexit uh, referendum on disconnecting people from, from the party. All of those fears, they, 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 they look like they're, they're, they're coming true. And so I, I you know, I, I feel for the, for the leader of the party. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.